Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers on mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Good morning, church. The Bible reading today is taken from the book of Psalms 95. When I finish reading, I would say this is the word of the Lord. Please respond by saying, thanks be to God. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness where your ancestor tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said they are a people whose heart go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. I also want to thank the pulpit guys for not doing this while I'm here. <laughs> so when I was coming up, Emmanuel came to meet me and said, told me you can't preach a bad sermon. He said, if you preach a bad sermon, they will say, ah, it's because he just got married. If you preach a good sermon, they will say what? Ah, it's because he just got married. I want to take this opportunity to really thank God and everyone really for your support um, in my last uh, big endeavors. <laughs> God bless you all. God bless you all. Yeah. Wow. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. It's a day you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. We thank you for bringing us into your presence. Your presence is everywhere, really. And so, Lord, we just ask, oh God, for your manifest presence here. We ask, oh God, that you, in a way, you increase the volume of your presence here. Let us hear it so loud in our hearts, in the name of Jesus. Amen. That your word will come like hammer, your word will come like water, like a double-edged sword, piercing our hearts, oh God, unto reconciliation, unto repentance, unto worship in the name of Jesus. Amen. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. All right, all right. So, um, in case you're watching with us for the first time, uh, my name is Tommy Olariwaju. I am, or if you're watching with us online for the first time, I'm one of the guys on the preaching team, obviously. I also like to introduce myself as the shortest preacher, right? Before I was a single preacher, now I'm one of the <laughs> married ones. So yeah, um, let's just get right to what we have. I, 
I get fascinated by stuff easily. Like, okay, not everything, but some things. Little things fascinate me. For example, the phone. Not like, you know, when they release a new iPhone or stuff like that, but just the idea that I can talk to somebody in Abuja while I'm here in Lagos. I, it just, I'm just excited about it. I, I love the fact that human beings love to invent. Human beings try to make things better, faster. And um, one of the things we've made better and faster is shopping, online shopping. You see, for somebody like me, I hate going to the market. Because no matter the price I get that thing, I will always feel like I'm being ripped off. You see, when you go to meet all those mamas and they say, ah, I said it's 1,500, they say, no, it's 2,000. They say, why? The price has gone up. I don't doubt that, right? I don't. I just don't know the extent to which the price went up. So I don't trust that she's giving me the right price. But with online shopping, things are better. If you check this vendor, if they give you a price, you say, let me get back to you. You check the next one, they give you a price. So you can survey the common price, and then you can then buy what you need to buy. So even if they're ripping people off, they're ripping plenty of people off. It's not just me. So there's something about online shopping. I just, I just really love the idea. And just, just as we all know, with things that have advantages, they also have disadvantages. You see, one of the big disadvantages of online shopping is this phenomenon we call what I ordered versus what I got. You see, if you're not familiar with that term, as it's pronounced, you ordered one thing, but you're getting something else. And many of us have been victims of this. For example, this person ordered this, right? Can we see this? They ordered this. Never mind that the person paid 5,000 naira to produce this. That's not the point. No, that's not the point, really. It's not the point. But they ordered this, right? And then they get this. Yeah. 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 See, what, what worries me is that the person actually sent it. Like, you, you felt this was... Or maybe it's the light. <laughs> There's that, so it might just be the light. Or the camera angle. Or they use the bad phone. Or maybe the person ordered for this, right? This is almost like a wedding dress. Almost like a wedding dress. Wait for it. And then they get this. Can I say something? If your relative or your partner or your spouse is a Nepal man, pray for him. If he's a policeman, pray for him. But if he's a tailor, pray for him hard. Because they're actually the criminals that do these things a lot. And may, again, many of us have been victims of this. Or maybe for you, it is not in dressing. It is in marriage. You see, when the guy came to meet you, he was all slim and just tall, and he didn't have pot bellies and stuff like that. Well, calved beards, and then he asked you out, he toasted you, he proposed, you got married. Two years down the line, Tomoana has pot belly. <laughs> Victoria is saying, this isn't what I ordered, though. <laughs> this isn't what he, she ordered. And that's what we all say when we get something we didn't order, we type. The first thing you type is not good afternoon. Is what? This is not what I ordered. Like I said, you could keep on playing different scenarios where this thing plays, what I ordered versus what I got. But, you, but can you think of a scenario where God actually ordered something, but that's actually not what he's getting? You see, in Genesis chapter 1, 
Bible said God made man in his own image and said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth and subdue it. Let life flow from you to the ends of the earth. But when we look at the world today, this isn't what God ordered. It's something else. You see, what God ordered is a bunch of worshippers, those that will worship him in spirit and in truth, those that will see a revelation of his beauty and glory and respond in worship. But what he's getting is people who at every turn will rebel against him. What God ordered are people who will constantly share the truth, who will give life. But what he's getting is our teams, liars, killers. You see, in this idea of what I ordered versus what I got, inside it you have this idea of there's a plan, but the reality is different. So what you ordered is the plan, but what you're getting is the reality. The title of this series is As It Is in Heaven. What God ordered, the plan, it is good in heaven, but by the time you get here, it's something different. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, the 24 elders in God's throne, in, God, in, God's, in God's heavenly throne room, right, they behold his glory and they say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things. And by your will they were created and have their being. That is, the 24 elders, the angelic beings, look at the high mountains, look at the valleys, look at the oceans, look at the streams. And what they respond to, the way they respond is in what? Is in worship. We, on the other hand, look at all these things. And Psalm 95 says you need to be cajoled to worship. The text says, come. Come. But this is in what God actually ordered. You see, many times they've said, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder, right? But in this situation, beauty is in what is being beheld. The problem is with the beholder. There is something wrong with us. Psalm 95 will propose that the problem is a hardness of heart. A hardness of heart. And you see, when you order something, that's not what you get. One thing that the vendor tries to do is to probably, or the tailor, they correct that thing that you are getting so it can be as close as possible to what you ordered. You see, there's going to be a correction in this reality because, again, this is it. We've looked at what God has ordered. People can worship him in spirit and in truth. And we're looking at the reality, and it is not telling. If there's going to be a correction in the reality, that can conform to the plan, that means our hardness of heart needs to be broken. God needs to break hard hearts. And you might be thinking, oh yeah, for non-Christians, but even for Christians, if we look at your life, is your life what God ordered or are you delivering something different? Is your prayer life what God ordered or are you delivering something different? Is your Bible reading what God has ordered or are you delivering something different? Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. You are the salt of the earth. You are his masterpiece created in Christ Jesus for you to do good works. That is what God has ordered. Is that what he's getting in our lives? Hard-heartedness leads to spiritual inactivity and spiritual inefficiency. That is what will eventually happen. And so if the kingdom of God is going to advance, God needs to deal with inactivity in our lives. God needs to deal with the hard-heartedness that leads to inefficiency. That is why we titled this sermon, Breaking Hard Hearts. Breaking Hard Hearts. And we're going to examine this under three headings. Two, actually, I was kidding. <laughs> Exposing hardness and breaking hardness. All right? Exposing, okay, three, I was kidding, sorry. Exposing hardness, breaking the hardness in us, 
breaking the hardness in the world. Can I say that again? Exposing hardness, breaking the hardness in us, and breaking the hardness in the world. You see, there are three kinds of hard-heartedness that the Bible describes. That if you read your Bible, you will find out that there are three types of hard-heartedness. I'm not saying if you open your Bible, you find three types of, you know, and you see the list. No. I'm just saying if you consider the whole of Scripture, generally speaking, I'm sure if you think about it, you'll come up with better categorizations, but generally speaking, there are three types of hard-heartedness. There's the hard-heartedness that the non-Christian has, that the Christian has been saved from. There is the hard-heartedness that the Christian has that he is being saved from. And there is the hard-heartedness that the Christian must not have, and that's the one he's being shielded from. I will together. Can I say that again? There is the hard-heartedness that the non-Christian has. That's the one that the Christian has been saved from. There is the hard-heartedness that the Christian has. Note what I said. The Christian has hard-heartedness, but he is being saved from it. And there is the hard-heartedness that the Christian must not have. That's what he's being shielded from. So for the non-Christian, the Bible says that their heart is hardened. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 to 19a, right? They are darkened in their understanding. That is, the Gentiles, non-Christians, unbelievers. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all what? Sensitivity. They cannot respond to God, even if God is being revealed to them. They cannot respond to the gospel, even if the gospel is being revealed to them. But you also find in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 21, says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them. Pause. This means that the ignorance that comes from hard-heartedness is different from the ignorance that comes from lack of information. Are we together? So let, just, let me just continue reading. Because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they what? Knew God. The, the unbeliever, the non-Christian, doesn't have an intellectual problem. He has a heart problem. Once I've, I've shared this story here before. Um, I'm just a real-life example. The day I gave my life to Jesus, I went to preach, right? I wasn't a Christian, but, you know, we grew up in church, so you knew the right things to say and stuff like that. So I went to preach. And then I met a family, a family member uh, in the beer parlor. So, uh, I mean, you know. In those days, we felt like, hey, if you are taking alcohol, you are going to burn. The hardest part of hell is for you. So I started preaching to him. And the message was essentially this. Turn or burn. For two hours, I was just nailing it to his head. And if you are not familiar with that, it means if you don't turn from your sins, you what? You will burn in hell, right? So I kept on saying that for two hours. I kept on hammering it, hammering it, hammering it. When I was done, he looked at me and he said, he said it in your Bible, I'm going to mix it paraphrase. He said, Tommy, I understand what you are saying, but me, you know what that means? I understand what you are saying, but I don't accept it. You see, it didn't have an interest. I started crying immediately. Why? Because I didn't understand why somebody would just see hell. I'll be walking right into it. It's this picture of maybe there's a deer in the night and somebody is driving and the deer sees the coming car and he's just running for it. In my mind, it was stupid. It didn't make any sense. But the Bible is saying it doesn't have an intellectual problem. It has a heart problem. 
Just as we found in Romans chapter 1, the Bible says what can be known about God is revealed in creation. So maybe you're one of those, you've done apologetics, you've argued with people, you've shown them why four reasons why the resurrection is one of the most authentic facts in history. You've shown them that there's an intelligent designer behind everything. And you know you've won the argument. You know what I'm talking about. You know you won. They couldn't respond to you. But still, they look at you and say, I don't accept. It's not an intellectual problem. There is something wrong with the heart. If you change a man's mind without changing his heart, you've not done much for him. Because you've given him something of earthly value, but you've not given him of anything of eternal value. Because the Bible says, what shall he profit a man if he does what? Gains the whole world and loses his soul. This should affect your evangelism. Because you understand that it is not the fact that I'm trying to change his mind that is going to change him. It's the fact that I'm going for his heart. That means you cannot just come and argue and argue and argue. Prayer has to be involved in what we are talking about. The question, before we start considering that, oh, this person has not accepted Jesus. Yes, you've spoken to him. Have you prayed for him? We talk a lot. We tend to argue. We are going back and forth. We are going back and forth. The, problem, the issue is this. If you spend more time actually praying for the non-Christian than you argue with them, you will see more fruits. The goal is not to win the debate. The goal is to win the debater. So don't just rejoice that you won a debate. Don't just rejoice that they cannot respond to you. Rejoice that they've committed their life to Jesus. That's the goal. I was reading a book the other day. They said, don't just measure, don't just measure output. Measure results. You are chunking stuff out. You are giving out. You are giving out. You are giving out. Yes, it's output. It is good. But is it resulting in anything? But note, dear Christian, that this psalm was not written to unbelievers. It was written to Christians. See it in verse 1. 75 verse 1. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise. To who? The rock of our salvation. This is to a Christian. Somebody that can call the Lord the rock of his salvation. Somebody that has been saved. Every command here, you see in verse 2, it says, let us come into his presence. In verse 6, it says, oh, come, let us worship. In verse 8, it then says, do not harden your heart. And there's a penalty for hardening your heart. It is written to the Christian. In verse 11, in verse 11 the text says, let me just open it. It says, therefore, I swore in my rod they shall not enter into my rest. That penalty for hard-heartedness is written to us. See, the passage reveals something. It says, it reveals that there is hard-heartedness in the place of worship. Let's go to verse 1 again. It says, oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to him. And some of us will get excited by this text. Let us make a joyful noise. And I say, let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. And for those of you that are extroverts, you look at them like, yes, let us shout. And I'm for that. In fact, I think once in a while, you should be able to come to the presence of God. And the person beside you should feel relatively unsafe. Because you're just, you know, you're happy about it. You're screaming. All those things are good. But look at it. He says, why are you doing this? Let us make a joyful noise. Why? Verse 3. For the Lord is a great God. That shouting has, been, has to be based upon the fact that you've contemplated upon the grace of God. Not because you're a natural shouter. Not because you are an extrovert. That is the worship that God demands. But we also see in verse 6, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down and let us kneel before the Lord. So he's talking about reverence. There's a kind of silence, standing in awe of the Lord. And this is not because you are an introvert. He gives the reason in verse 7, 
for he is our what? Our God. It is still based on the fact that you've contemplated on God's goodness, on God's greatness. So again, many times what we tend to do is, you know, the person that is dancing, look at you, say, why is this one standing like stick? Right? And the one that is standing like stick, say, why is this one as unsettled as the waters? Right? But the Bible commends both of you. He accepts both of you. But at the same time, he challenges both of you. How? You see, Psalm 95 is, um, is an invitational psalm. It's a psalm of invitation. It says, oh, come, let us worship. So you, remember, you know when we do call to worship in church, right? Some of you are like, what is call to worship? Come early to church, all right? <laughs> so when we do call to worship, it says, come, let us worship. Come, let us shout. Come, let us sing. It's an invitational psalm. And many of us, we don't have issues with this, right? But the issue is that if you come this Sunday, this Sunday, come and worship God. If you come next Sunday, it says, come and worship God. Come the next one, it says, come and worship God. And that's where the problem is. We cannot always give God the worship he deserves based on the fact that we contemplated on his greatness. Sometimes we are judging him because, well, the music is good. Sometimes we are judging him because, oh, I had a bad week, so I'm just going to be silent. It's not because you are reverential. It's because you had a bad week. And like, and like I said, the title of the series is, As It Is in Heaven. There is something that happens in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. Bible says, each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. What does he say? Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. The worship, the response, the way you're supposed to respond to God, there has to be a regularity to it, there has to be a consistency to it. But all of us fail that test because, again, we do it the day we feel good, we worship the day we don't feel good, we don't worship. The psalm is saying you are doing this because there's a hardness in your heart. It's not because God's glory diminishes this Sunday and it increases the next Sunday. The Bible says the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Is what? Mercies. Never come to an end. They are what? New every morning. That is, every day you have a chance to respond anew to the mercies of God. You have a chance to respond anew to the glory of God. But you don't do that. Why? There is hardness in your heart. It's today on, tomorrow off. You cannot respond the way you ought to. Maybe this analogy is going to help us. Disclaimer, I am not a therapist, obviously. I am not um, a licensed psychologist, obviously. But I'm going to say certain things, just generally speaking, all right? I'm sure you will think of better things to say, but generally speaking. When you hear the word psychopath, what comes to your mind? A murderer. Someone that kills without remorse. Just kills without remorse. But actually, not all, in fact, most psychopaths don't kill. They actually lead normal lives. One of the things you know about a psychopath is that they are unable to respond to situations the way a normal person would. And secondly, they know what right or wrong is. They just don't think it applies to them most of the time. So maybe you, you see a dead dog, and you say, oh, dead dog, you know, oh, but You see a human being, you go, somebody died. You see, your own brain detected the change in the weightiness of the matter, and you responded appropriately. A psychopath doesn't act that way. A psychopath sees a dead dog and says, oh, dead dog. And sees a dead human being and says, oh, dead human being. He cannot recognize the change in weightiness of the situations. In the very same way, do you realize that when you come into the presence of the Lord, you have moved from the profane to the holy. You have moved from the secular to the sacred. But you cannot detect the weightiness in the matter. Why? Because there's a spiritual psychopath in all of us. 
Our hearts are hardened. Our hearts are hardened. You cannot respond to what you are saying because something is wrong with us. But like I said as well, that's not the only issue they have. Another issue is that they know what right or wrong is. They just don't think it applies to them. Hardness of heart is revealed even when we sin. It's one of the things I don't like when we say is, you see, okay, first, first and foremost, I, I've lived some few years in, on earth, right? And so I have, unfortunately, some experience in sinning, all right? As do all of you, right? One of the terms I hate is, this person fell into sin. In my mind, what do you mean? Because that has the idea of, you know, um, there's a stone, the person didn't see it, and he hit his leg, and, and if the air is about to fall, he can't help himself, so he fell. But that's not what the Bible teaches about sin, or how we sin. In James chapter 1, verse 13 to 15, the Bible says, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by what? Their own evil desires and enticed. You know when you're about to sin. We don't fall into sin, we walk right into it. Because at the time when you're about to lie, for example, there is a split second in your mind, you know I can say the truth. You know what right or wrong is, you just don't think it applies to you at that time. It's spiritual psychopathy. Or when you're about to say something that you know is going to hurt your spouse, you know this thing is going to hurt this person and you crafted it well, you had the chance to withdraw it. You didn't withdraw it. Then you said it because you, you were going to get some form of satisfaction from hurting that person. It's spiritual psychopathy. We don't fall into sin necessarily. We walk right into it. You see, when you say, I fell into sin, it's as ridiculous as this story. Let me tell you a story. So there's this boy, right? He, does, he, he misbehaves a lot. Anytime he misbehaves, his mom will tell him, why are you doing this? He will say, the devil made me do it. He comes again, why are you doing this? He said, the devil made me do it. So the mother told him, he said, when next the devil comes, tell him, get thee behind me, Satan. Like a typical Nigerian mother, Christian mother. She told him, get thee behind me, Satan. He said, ah, no, water, no problem. So his mom told him, don't go swimming. So he went to swim. So his mom came and said, ah, I told you not to swim. Why did you do it? He said, the devil made me do it. He said, but I told you that when he comes, tell him to get it behind me. He said, I told him to get behind me. Then he pushed me into the swimming pool. <laughs> it is that ridiculous. It is that ridiculous. Because what the guy was saying was, I couldn't help myself. It wasn't me. It was something else. Don't blame anybody for your sin. It's the hardness of your own heart. There is spiritual psychopathy in all of us. Or maybe you see this in Nigerian movies. You know, when the guy cheats, and the guy is saying, I'm sorry, the devil made me do it. And the woman will say, like, is it that you slipped on a uh, banana peel and then you just landed on the lady? No, you thought about it. You planned it. Many of us know this. You plan your sin. It doesn't just jump on you. It's the hardness of heart. Damn. Or maybe even in worship, the reason why I don't worship people, you could probably say, is because of suffering. You know, I had a bad day. A very, very bad week. I just, I just can't bring myself to respond to God the way I ought to respond. You see, the Bible teaches that we should mourn with those that mourn. We should sympathize. So, first and foremost, I am really, really, even though you look at my face is not showing, but I'm really trying. I'm really, really sorry you had a bad day. I am sorry you had a bad week. I'm sorry. Probably you'll be having a bad day. Or maybe you even think your whole life has been bad. I am deeply sorry about that. But Psalm 95 still speaks to you. Because you see, 
in verse 8. It says, do not harden your heart as at Meribah. What happened at Meribah? That's in Exodus chapter 17. You see, the children of Israel just left Egypt. They just passed through the, through, through, the, through the Red Sea. And then they got to a point where they were thirsty and they needed water. The Bible said they lost their trust in God and they hardened their hearts. They were suffering. Do you know what it means to lack water? No, I mean, you can look at it as funny, but think about the fact that there's probably a man with a three-year-old daughter, a three-year-old son, has not taken water for a very long time. And the person is suffering. And God still said they hardened their hearts. And in response to that, they said, I swore they will not enter into my rest. Suffering, suffering for many of us is the reason why we will not come into the presence of God. But one thing you need to do is why we will not respond to God rightly. Is the reason why we become inactive in the presence of God. But what you need to understand is this. Jesus on the cross was at the height of his own suffering. And that is where he accomplished his greatest work. That is where he responded to God the most. Suffering can be a reason for your inactivity in the place of worship. It's not, a, it's not an excuse for it. There's a difference. Oh, I understand you suffered and that's why you're not responding to God the way you ought to respond. Yes, but it is not an excuse for it. If we are going to be the kind of people that God wants us to be, God needs to break our hearts. And that leads to the second point, breaking hardness in us. Breaking hardness in us. See, there are two things you need to know when you want to break hard-heartedness. One, you need to have the right posture by assessing the situation well. You need to understand the extent or how bad hardness of heart is. And two, you need to have the right instruments so that you can confront the situation. You need to have the right posture by assessing the situation. You need to have the right instrument and so you confront the situation. As having the right posture, not just because having the right posture. See, verse 11 of Psalm 95. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Because of what? Because of hard-heartedness. Like I said before, this thing was written to believers. It was written to Christians. And it is a real threat. It's not like when a mother is, when the child is believing and say, I will beat you, I'll beat you, and they never do it. No. This is actually a real threat. It was a real threat to the people of God then. It is a real threat to us now. That if you harden your heart, you will not enter into the rest of God. And the rest of God for the, for the Israelites was, um, was entering to the promised land. But for us now, rest is actually entering to the new heavens and the new earth. The Bible is saying if you harden your heart, it is possible for you. This, this hard-heartedness that we are considering as little, little things, for you, it is possible that you will not make it into the new heavens and the new earth. And maybe you are here, you are saying, but I mean, we are eternally secure, aren't we? I mean, God, the, good, the person that God saves, he saves to the uttermost. And you probably quote John chapter 10, verse 28. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Hinting that if anybody snatches this person out of the Father's hand, the person is greater than the Father. And since no one is greater than the Father, well, we're eternally secure, isn't it? Or maybe 1 Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power unto the coming of the salvation. So God is the one that keeps us. 
God is the one that shields us. So yes, we're eternally secure. But again, Psalm 95 is saying, we're eternally secure, but if you harden your heart, you will still perish. Or maybe this is an Old Testament verse. Let's go to the New Testament. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 7 to 11, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke to David, as in the passage already quoted, Psalm 95. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. The writer of Hebrews is applying Psalm 95 to Christians and is presenting the same threats to us. For if Joshua had given them rest, verse 8, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work, just as God did for me. Verse 11, this is where I'm going. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following the example of disobedience. Strive, make every effort to enter into this rest so that no one will perish because of disobedience. This is a legit threat to us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Verse 27. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. You see, for many of us in our subconscious, what we think we have is time. So if I do something wrong now, I will probably repent later. And you see, one, one thing, one thing and I, I actually think time is bad news. If you consider the idea of the hardness of heart, time is your enemy. You see, when I was growing up, uh, they used to do trust. I don't know if they, they don't really do that anymore. I mean, around me. And in those trusts, you, you see written big, big on it, are you saved? Or if Jesus comes tomorrow, will you go? You hear that kind of thing? And all those preachers, every sermon, if Jesus comes tomorrow, will you go? You know you will not go. So what do you do? You respond. Tomorrow comes. Uh, Jesus didn't show up. They did it again the next time. They did it again the next time. After a while, there is a way you respond to it. You'll be like, oh, well, it's not like he's coming anytime soon and we still have time. I'm saying again, time is your enemy when we think about the hardness of hearts. Because if you have time, that means there's time for your heart to get harder and harder. The more you give in to your sin, the more you give in to hardness of heart, you're unlocking various levels of hard-heartedness until you get to a point where God destroys you. Time is not your friend if you, are, if you continue to sin. Time is your enemy. Don't think that because Jesus is not coming tomorrow, oh, you are free. No, you are not. You are still in danger. I mean, my peer, I say, is it because of this? Because I didn't worship God the way I ought to worship God? Or small anger, you are, you are turning to fight, perish. Why? I'll tell you why. I'll tell you why. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, concerning anger, Paul writes, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. Why is this important? If you, again, if you read the whole Bible, the reason why you don't give the devil a foothold is this. If you give the devil a foothold in your life, what is going to do is that it's going to build a stronghold with it. I'll say that again. If you give the devil a foothold, one small thing in your life, what he's going to do is that he's going to build a stronghold with it. See, the idea of foothold is this. I remember we played tug of war. I remember tug of war when we were growing up, right? That, you plant your feet in the ground. There's a foothold there. That's what the devil does. He plants his feet there. But what he's trying to do is to build a stronghold. So when you plant your feet, it is easy to still dislodge the person. 
right? But it's a little bit harder as well. So that's what happens when maybe you give in to anger, you give in to loss, you are chatting with that person you know you're not supposed to be chatting with. That's what is happening. But what the devil is doing all the while, once he does that, he starts to build a stronghold. A stronghold is a structure that is erected specifically to repel attack. So when he gets the foothold, he begins to build a stronghold around that foot, such that when the word of God is coming to you, you cannot respond when it comes to that particular issue. But it doesn't end there. Over time, he will begin to advance his own kingdom in your heart, and your hardness begins to grow. It begins to increase the stronghold till you get to a point where the word of God will come in any form, and you cannot respond to it. Worship will come in any form. You cannot even remember the last, last time your heart was stirred to actually worship God. Where did this start from? Maybe one day you started giving in to loss when you were not supposed to. Okay, they don't, they don't say I'm supposed to give in to loss. But you've been giving in. And what the devil does with this, when he builds a stronghold, it is to render you inactive. So maybe for some of you, again, oh, is it you that want to lead congressional prayer? You that you shouted at your wife the other day. It's a stronghold. He's trying to convince you that you shouldn't do this particular thing. Oh, don't talk to your colleague. You want to talk to your colleague. Is it not you that was watching porn last week? What is he doing? He's trying to render you inactive. He's trying to render you inefficient. But thanks be to God, he has not left us defenseless. Amen. There is a defense that God has provided for us. And this is about having the right instrument and then confronting the situation. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. Bible says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The schemes of the devil are this stronghold that are expressed through hard-heartedness. So the Bible is saying, you put on the whole armor of God. Put on your shield of faith, your element of salvation, or, um, breastplate of righteousness, belt of, hey, Sunday school, my God. <laughs> belt of truth, gospel shoes, right? Put on those things. It's the armor of God. Everybody has the armor of God, but it's one thing to have it. There's nothing to wait. There's nothing to stand. Standing is the position of confrontation. When you stand with the armor of God, that means you're about to confront, or you're confronting that particular issue. You're confronting the hard-heartedness in your own life. The question then is, how do we stand? We stand by prayer. You see, all the armor of God I just finished quoting, now that's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 17. Commentators talk about how, yes, this is the armor of God. It's really one long sentence. But it is tied to verse 18 to 20 of Ephesians chapter 6. And pray, right? Pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always what? Keep on praying for all the lost people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words will be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Next, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Four times. Four times prayer comes up. Why? Because the way you actually stand is by praying. The Bible says the fervent prayer of the righteous man makes tremendous power available. If there's going to be power to break hard-heartedness in your life, you need to pray. Not just pray, you need to learn how to tarry in the place of prayer until you begin to respond the way you ought to respond. Don't just pray today and go tomorrow. Pray until something happens. You see, many of us, the problem we have is that small thing happens, you run away. You celebrate too quickly. There was this guy who was blind, and he came to meet Jesus, and Jesus, and he said, heal me. Jesus touched him and healed him. He said, what do you see? He said, I see men as trees. His healing was not complete. What would be stupid for him to do is to run away and say, I can at least see. But for many of us, that's what we do. 
You can see God in a sense, but you're not seeing him clearly enough. Do not stop until you are able to respond rightly to the revelation of God that is set before you. That we can then be able to, that's the only way we can then destroy spiritual inactivity and spiritual inefficiency in our lives. That is the only time when we can then begin to confront the world. Amen. And my last point, breaking the hardness in the, in the world. Breaking the hardness in the world. You see, there is an idea in this, in this text that is implied. Totally implied. It's not, it's not really there. And it's in, it's in Psalm 95, verse 10. Verse 10. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. You see, God delivered Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. He delivered them from spiritual slavery, from economic, every form of slavery. He delivered them so that they can then go and dethrone, in a sense, all the evil nations of Canaan from Canaan land. But the Bible says they got to the border of Canaan. The Bible says their heart was hardened. They lost their trust in God and they didn't move on. God then swore that they would not enter into his rest, that those people would not enter into the promised land. And they roamed around the wilderness for 40 years. That was 40 years longer than Canaan should have been under the, under the reign of evil people. The hardness in the heart of the individual, the hardness in the heart of the church has implications for the world. If you are spiritually inactive, it's not just you that will suffer for it. The world is going to suffer for it. See, many of us, we live in an individualistic, we live in an individualistic society, so we are used to the idea that what I've done is only going to affect me. But the Bible disagrees with you. In Ezekiel chapter 3, verse 18, when I say to a wicked person, you will surely die, and you do not warn them or speak out to dissuade them from their evil ways in order to save their life. That wicked person will what? Will die for their sins. Will die for their sins. Yes, there's a hardness of heart in the non-Christian. There's a hardness of heart in the sinner. But God still says that because of your actions, they can actually die in their sins. Or maybe Romans chapter 10, verse 13 to 14. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? So it makes sense. You have to preach for people to hear, for people to believe, for people to call, and then they will be saved. If you don't preach, they will not be saved. And this is what the devil is trying to do when he's trying to dissuade you from being active in ministry in your place of work or being active, being active in ministry in your families. He knows that if you go on this way, people will hear the gospel and what will happen? They will actually be saved. And so we keep the word of God in our hearts. It is the proclaimed word that saved, not the known word. Can I say that again? It is the word of God that you proclaim that will save people, not the word of God that you know. It's not enough for you to know. You have to get to a point where you're able to break these strongholds over your heart and then you can proclaim the word. The way these strongholds work is this. Many of you have experienced this. Some people came to me, someone came to me one time and said, I've not read my Bible in a month. I said, a month, that, that, that's a lot. It's a whole lot. I said, wow, go and read this now. I mean, if you've not read it, go and read it. She said, I can't. 
I said, why? He said, I just can't. Why? No explanation. There is a stronghold there. That's what the devil does. Most likely, the devil has built a stronghold and has fortified it with bars of guilt, bars of depression, bars of discouragement, bars of a slavery mindset. She is then inactive and unable to actually preach because when she wants to go ahead to preach, the devil comes and says, Oh, is this what I want to preach? Well, I should read the Bible. And a non Christian will just go by. If we are going to break the hardness in the world, God needs to break the hardness in our own lives. The word of God needs to be proclaimed with prayer. We need to get to a point where we are saying, Father, prosper the word, your word in our hands. As a church, as a community, prosper your word in our hands. When Jesus was on earth, he is the plan. Amen. He is what God ordered and he delivered. When Jesus was on earth, he was talking to certain people in Luke chapter 24. The Bible says, they, they testified, they said, weren't our hearts burning as he was speaking to us? Again, that's Jesus. He has gone where his representatives here. What is supposed to happen is that as the church, in the church, as the word of God is being proclaimed, as the word of God is being sung, as the word of God is being preached, people's hearts are supposed to be burning. Not just for the church, even for your life, in your own life, that people will encounter you and as you tell them about the gospel, not just an intellectual thing, their hearts will begin to burn for Jesus. That is what God ordered. Is that what your life is delivering? The gospel is what changes people. Jesus said concerning the gospel, he said the words that I speak to you, they are what? They are spirit and they are life. The gospel is spiritual and it is life-given. That is the same gospel that has been entrusted to you. Remember, this analogy is going to help you. In John chapter 11, Jesus got to the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus was dead for four days. He was thinking. There was nothing that would have come out of it. Jesus came. No, he said, Lazarus, come forth. Pause. Does that make any sense? Oh. Lazarus, come out. Lazarus cannot come out. Why? He's dead. But when we say the word of God is spirit and it is life, it is spiritual and it is life-given, that word that went forth, went and gave life to Lazarus and enabled him to be able to respond to the word that has gone forth. In the very same way, the gospel in your mouth is what can actually give life to the dead heart of the non-Christian so they can respond to the command of the gospel. This is what God ordered. This is what we are supposed to be delivering. That all around us, in Lagos, in Nigeria, in the world, the hearts will begin to awaken to the gospel. Hearts will begin to awaken to the glory of God. If only we will first undo the hardness in our own hearts, then we can handle the hardness in the world. Then maybe someday we can say, and we look all around us when there are times of revival, and we say, Lord, your will is being done here as it is done in heaven. We can boldly say, Father, you have ordered something, and Lord, we are delivering it. Let us get on our feet as we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.